Why are you laughing at? Oh, I thought you were laughing at me. This is like the little, this is like the heckling crowd down here. Like, like I'm always looking over here to see what it is that I did wrong that they're, uh, that they're ready to make fun of me about after the end of service. Um, so we've been doing this series on, on worship, and I hope it's, it's something that's making you think. Um, it, it's so easy for us to fall into the, the trap, and I've, I've been talking to this with, with some other minister friends, that it's, it's e- really easy in today's world, as busy as we are, as fast-paced as we are, it's easy to fall into the trap of, I'll worship on Sunday. You know, I'll go Sunday, I'll, I'll, I'll christen the doors of the church, after that hour's over, I need to get back to my life. And it's really easy to fall into that trap of relegating worship to a single day or a single hour of our week when worship is supposed to encompass who we are. Our lives here are a fleeting moment and that moment is supposed to be spent exalting and glorifying God in preparation for eternity. And, and I hope that throughout this series that may, maybe you're thinking on that a little bit more. You're, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I live that out? How, how do I make worship the center point, the focus of my life? And, and hopefully today we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more deeply and we'll kind of look at the application side of this series. But before I get started with it, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer and then we're going to be diving into the Old Testament this morning. Father God, thank you this time that we have together. Lord, it's easy in, in today's day and age, in the busyness and, and the craziness and the chaotic nature of the world to just minimize you. you know, God, Jesus spoke so much about the importance of, of letting the world go as we fully pursue you. And, and Lord, I pray that we are a congregation that desires that that we want to be a part of that sort of mentality, that sort of, of devotion and faith. And Lord, I, I just pray that as we move forward, that's the type of worship that we have, that, that we are sold out in our devotion to you. Because that, that's when we're empowered. And so Lord, this morning as we open your word, as we dive into what you have to say to us, what you have spoken let it come alive, let it penetrate our hearts and elicit a desire out of us to be devoted to you in worship. God, speak through me this morning and move me aside so that your voice is heard. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So this morning I, I, was, I was thinking on you know, this question of when do we worship and, and how do we identify what that means. And, and I think the best way to kind of open that into it is thinking about what it is that when people see you, what is it that, how do they instantly know something about you? you know, I, I think, especially like if we go and meet someone new and we introduce ourselves and, and we say, my name is uh, Garrett, and then the first thing we do, I had to move that because it was bugging my OCD. <laughs> it has to be in the middle of the thing. Um, the first thing we do is we say, my name is Garrett, I'm a minister, or, or I'm Isabella, I'm a, a, a school teacher. We identify who we are and what we do, or we give them a characteristic of, of, of who we are in order to introduce ourselves, to make ourselves known. And, and I think that if we walked into our, someone else's house, we would instantly be able to identify who people are simply by looking at their walls, 
looking at their decorations. You know, think about it. If you walk into someone's, the office of someone's house or the office of their workplace, you're going to see family pictures. You're going to see this person as a family. You're going to see uh, Wendell's office had an elk skin on his, um, on, on the, his chair, so I knew he was a hunter. He had pictures of hunting. Uh, we, you see what kind of books someone reads. What, what decorates your home identifies who you are as a person. Um, and, and, you know, that's why when you are given this space when you're growing up to decorate, whatever phase of life you're going through is what decorates the walls of your, of your room, right? When I, when I was little, I shared a room my entire life with my brother. And all throughout our 18 years of sharing a room together, what decorated our walls was basketball and baseball posters. Derek Jeter was above the left side of my bed. Kevin Garnett was above my head. Bryce and the Yankee symbol was on the far side of the wall. You know, that's what decorated our, our room our entire life. And then I got older, and I went out on my own, and my finances became mine, and I didn't have to ask mom for everything. Um, so I started getting even more invested in comic books, and so I would go out, and I would buy comic books, and I'd buy comic book posters and put those on my room. So it's kind of like opposite. You'd think when you go to college, you would leave the comics behind, but that's when I really started decorating my rooms with it. That's when I was really attached to it. And, and then I got married, and you can see my priorities in life because everything in our house is what she puts up there. And so you learn, I believe, happy wife, happy life. So. <laughs> we have like one wall of our house that is my decoration in our office, and that's where my gun cabinet is, and my desk is, and, and the rest is, is all what she wants to do. And so, <laughs> the point I'm making is if, if we walk into where someone lives, if we walk into where you spend most of your time without knowing you, we can really pretty quickly know who you are as a person. We can know if you're organized. We can know what your interests are. We can know your background, your family. Um, what, what we hold as priority in life surrounds us. Even if we don't think we're letting it surround us, it surrounds us. And, and so what does this have to do with worship? What, what does this have to do with when we worship? What, what does this question have to do in describing who we are? Um, when we think of this question this morning, I don't want us to think of it as in relation to time and, and location. The question, when do we worship, doesn't have anything to do with Sunday morning and a place on a Sunday morning as much as it has to do with who we are as a, as a believer. So how does when we worship address the question of who we are. How, how does that tie in to the decoration of our homes even? Because there's a reason why I gave that illustration. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and maybe this will all make sense here in a second. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is, has two different names for it. Um, the word Deuteronomy comes from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, where a bunch of Hebrew scholars and the 200... Eight, uh, BC got together and rewrote the Hebrew scriptures in Greek because that was the predominant time, and they gave this book the word Deuteronomy, which just means second law or um, restated law. So the book Deuteronomy basically just means going over the law again. That's in the Greek word, but in the Hebrew word, 
the word for the book of Deuteronomy is devarim, which means words. It means speeches. And so there's a reason I want to give a little bit of background there. It's because what you find in the book of Deuteronomy is Moses is giving the law a second time in a series of speeches to the Israelite people. So why is, why is he doing this? Why is Moses going through and restating the law in a series of speeches? Well, if you remember, Moses and the generation of Israelites that had came out of, of Egypt weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. They were unfaithful. They kept doubting God. They kept turning away from God. Moses even in, in, some, in some ways doubted God. And so the original generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt couldn't go into the promised land. And so what happens is as that generation is dying out, Moses comes to the new generation and restates the law. He gives them the law a second time and he gives it through speeches and words. And, and if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter um, 5, verses 6 through 21, you can see he restates the Ten Commandments. That, that's the Ten Commandments being spoken again. And he just goes through everything that we have in the law, everything we have in, in Exodus specifically, and in, in parts of Leviticus, and he restates them all here. And then we get to chapter 6. We get to this point here that he's just gone over the foundation of the law. He's just gone over the Ten Commandments. He's given it to this new generation in a series of speeches. And then he tells, gives them this side speech that is now known as the Shema. The Shema. Go, everyone say that word, Shema. 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 We, I used to have a professor in college that made us repeat um, Hebrew words or Greek words. That word just means listen. It's the Hebrew word for listen. If you say Shema, uh, if you're uh, getting on your kids, Shema, you know, you're just telling them, listen to me. <laughs> but that's the first word in what is known as the greatest command or the foundational command in Israel. And this, that comes in verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, listen, Israel. Shema Yisrael is, is the wording. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you find them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them down on the doorposts of your house and on your city gate. What he is referencing here is Moses is giving the speech, and he's saying he, he has just told the Ten Commandments. He's just given them the Ten Commandments, and now he's saying, okay, now listen to what I'm telling you. This is important. The Lord you're worshiping, the, the Lord that has given you the Ten Commandments, is one God. It's not the multiplicity of gods in Canaan. It's not Pharaoh in Egypt. It is one God. It is Yahweh, and you are, in order to obey him, love him with your whole heart with your, all of your strength, with all of your mind, with your entire being. The, the word there that is, is translated um, soul is the Hebrew word nefesh, which doesn't necessarily mean soul as what we think of, as, as in like that invisible part of us. The word nefesh in Hebrew is your entire being. Moses is saying when you love God, you love him unconditionally with everything you have in you. That is your command. If you want to obey everything I'm telling you today, new upcoming generation of Israel, love God completely and holistically. 
That's the command, but how do they apply that command? How do they apply, love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind? How, how do they apply that into their hands? That's what comes then in verses 6 through 7. So verse 5 is the Shema command. Verses 6 through 7 is the application of that. He says, write these words on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about about God. Talk about loving God. Talk about upholding the God as you sit in your house. When, when you're just walking along the road and you see someone. Talk, talk about it when you're lying down. Think about it when you're getting up. And then he says, bind them as signs on your forehead. Bind them on, on your hand. Let them be a symbol. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Write them on your city gates. I don't know if you've ever heard the term phylacteries. Jesus in, in his gospels mentions that. All it is, a phylactery is a band that would go on a hat that had a little tiny scroll on it with pieces of scripture written on it, and they would wear that. Israelites would wear the words. They would take this literally, and they would write words on little tiny pieces of parchment. They would put it in this little box, strap it to their head, strap it to their arms, and they would take this command they would bind the words to themselves. And then they would write them on the doorposts of their cities. They'd write them on the walls of their house. And so that ties into what I was saying before. What we have around us, surrounding us, identifies us. And Israel was meant to identify themselves with loving the one true God of Israel. They were supposed to love God holistically, wholeheartedly, and constantly. Everywhere they went, the love of God was supposed to go before them. The love of God, the call to love God, was something that was to be continually remembered and enacted. And the thing is, that's what worship is. You know, worship isn't sitting here and singing songs. I mean, it is. It's a part of worship. But worship holistically is loving God. It is with your actions, showing in your actions that you love God. That's what worship is. And so upholding the Shema is worship to the Israelites. It's going out of their way to, to say, I love God. Here's the actions of my love for God. Here's my worship as I love God. Now, we show worship by coming together and praying together, by coming together and exalting God. That's worship, but that's in that worship, that's just simply loving God and exalting God and showing reverence to God. And so the Shema is the command to worship God, to love God constantly, continually, everywhere Israel went. And this command was vital to Israel. It, it was the, the, the essence of the entire law, okay? And we know that to be the case because when we fast forward to the gospel accounts, Jesus comes into this, this we're going to turn to Matthew 22 here. Jesus comes to this interaction between the Pharisees and also previously before that, the Sadducees. And he addresses this kind of situation that's going on. Um, and I'm going to go, I'll just go ahead and read it and, and give some background afterwards. This is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. 
teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Okay, so we just read the Shema. The first command, the most important command that Jesus gives them is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. He gives them the Shema. So a little bit of background here on what's going on. Previously before this, in verses 23 through 33, Jesus addresses a group called the Sadducees. And if you get mixed up between who the Sadducees are and who the Pharisees are, they're both religious officials in Israel. There was three widespread sects, S-E-C-T-S, of religious people in, in Israel. One was the Pharisees, which we most commonly talk about. Then you had the Sadducees, and then you had the Essenes. The Essenes are kind of their, and then you had the Zealots as well, so there's four. The Zealots were, they would go and kill people in the name of God. Um, the Essenes were kind of nomads. They would reserve and walk away, remove themselves from every way. They were kind of like monks. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they believed that when you died, you died. There was nothing after that. They really didn't look at the prophets as scriptural. They took it as, you know, with a grain of salt. They were like, basically, they held the prophets of being great preachers. The Pharisees were kind of the religious, the, the, the people that were in control of the Jewish religion at the time. They, they were in control of the Sanhedrin. And, and people looked to the religious leaders as experts in the law. And Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees. He had just told, the, basically showed the Sadducees that what they believed about there not being a resurrection was, was wrong. That he basically debunked them in, in one conversation. And so now the Pharisees have come to Jesus and it says they want to test Jesus in Matthew. In Mark's gospel, it's more like they're trying to reward Jesus by giving him a softball answer. Like, okay, here's a big question for you, Jesus. Heart. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to see, okay, he just silenced the Sadducees. Maybe he's on our side. Maybe he agrees with the interpretation of the law we, as we do. Hey, Jesus, what's the most important command? And they would have expected him to say this. They would have expected him to say the Shema because this was the ultimate command. This was the pinnacle of the law. The law was wrapped up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus answers it the way they would have thought. But then he adds to it, and he says, and the second one is just as good, just, just as great. It, it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so he gives a little bit more information, and here's what Jesus is trying to, to say. He, firstly, he's saying that our call, you know, he doesn't dispute that the Shema isn't the greatest command. Our call to love God encompasses our worship. It is the ultimate expression of our worship, but the way we do that is complete in the way we love others as well. We can't fully love God if we aren't loving others because God loves others. Wendell said once in a sermon that what are we going to do if we have hate in our heart for another believer and we get to heaven and they're sitting right there across the table from us. How are we going to engage in that? We can't fully love God, love scripture, love the eternity that God has brought for us if we aren't 
enacting that love for God by loving others. That's what Jesus is saying. We love God and we express that worship and that love for God by loving others. That's the first thing he's saying by bringing up the second command. But then he also goes on and to say the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. What does that mean? Well, in, in Hebrew view, the Torah, the law, was the revelation of the characteristics of God. The, the reason why the Israelites have this prominent view on their religion is because they believe, and rightfully so, before Jesus came, they believe that God has only revealed himself through Scripture, through the law. That up until the point that God was on Mount Sinai with Moses, he had never fully revealed his characteristics to humanity. But when he did that on Mount Sinai, that was God revealing himself to humanity. And so they look at the Torah as saying, this is the characteristics of God. And then they look to the prophets as saying, this is the message that God is giving to his people. So Jesus is saying that the characteristics of God in the law and the message of God in the prophets are fulfilled by love the Lord your God and love people. He's saying that you connect characteristics of God when you love God and love people. He's saying that you hear and accept the message of God when you love God and love people. The command to love, the Shema, is the command that encompasses all other commands. And that command to love God is the ultimate expression of worship. Now, this is what Israel saw the Shema as. This is how Jesus taught Israel the Shema. What does the church do with it? What does the church do with this expression of worship? This expression of love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is answered in, in Acts chapter 2. In, in Acts, the early church is bursting onto the scene. And Jesus has just risen and resurrected and has gone to heaven. The disciples have come back and they're staying in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost comes. Peter delivers this, this profound sermon. 3,000 people are saved in that one day. And then you get this passage, kind of this, this thesis of what the early church was. And we've really, when, when we put together our mission statement here at Freedom and we put together our core values, a lot of it reflected this passage here in Acts 2, 42 through 40, 47. But I want to focus on verses 46 through 47 of chapter 2. It says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Okay, so the question for this morning, when do we worship? Well, what does it say here, the early church? Every day, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple? What if every single day we devoted ourselves to coming here and for an hour worshiping God and, and praying as a church? What would our faith look like then? If we said every single day at 6 in the morning we're coming here and before we start our day we're worshiping God, we're praying together, and then we'll go about our day, what would the church look like? What, what, would, what would the presence of God and freedom look like then? I'll tell you what it'll look like. It looks like every day the Lord adds to our number. 
every single day, the church expressed their love for God by worshiping God together. By coming together and committing to going to the temple, even though there were at the temple that didn't want them there worshiping Jesus, they went anyway and prayed and broke bread. They remembered Jesus' sacrifice. They worshiped God, and they did that every single day. They praised God continually with joyful and sincere hearts, and because they were praising God, out of their worship, they were empowered, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And that's the point. Our directive to worship, when, all the time, communally, consistently, loving God, loving people, loving each other, our directive to do that empowers the church. It's the fuel that, that builds people in. If we aren't doing that, if we aren't worshiping constantly, if, if we're just relegating our worship to one Sunday a week, you know, it's like we're not feeding ourselves properly. It's like how I fed myself in college, just eating junk food all the time. I, I'm, you're not building up adequate strength. If, if we're not devoted to worship, we're not devoted to what gives us the strength to empower people to come to us, to empower the Lord to be in our midst. Now, in talking about this, I want to turn back again to what the Shema had to say. Moses is talking, remember, to this new upcoming generation. He's saying, listen, I've, I've just given you a list of a bunch of laws. I've just given you a list of, of the qualities and characteristics of God. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot to, to digest. Here's the simplified version of it. Love God with everything that you are. And as you do that, talk about it with your children. Talk about it with, with your friends. Talk about it with your family. Plaster it all around you. Make sure everyone knows that you worship the Lord God. And there was a reason. He didn't want them to get into the promised land and forget who they were. Our worship empowers us as believers and, and that's what Moses was saying whenever he was giving them the Shema, is worship God and let everyone see your worship. Because by worshiping God and letting people see it, you are exemplifying your faith. I, I think back to this a lot. When I, was, when I was younger, I can't remember how old, we, my congregation growing up was very similar to this up until I was about um, 15, we had the pews, we were traditional, we did all the hymns, um, and I can remember I would sit, and we, we did the split as well, we would sit and worship together with the kids with families, and then we would, the kids would, and I can remember I would sit and I would worship with my, or I'd stand and I'd worship with my parents, and I would sing those hymns out loud and proud, similar to how I do, probably messing up all of the, the lyrics messing up, falling. <laughs> well, you know, it, my, me messing up lyrics doesn't start here. It started when I was little, just loud and proud for everyone to hear. And I, I remember I would sing, and one day I looked over at my dad, and I, could, I knew he, he wasn't singing. His lips weren't moving. His eyes were watching the screen. He was reading the words, but he was just standing there, som, 
soberly watching everything. And so I thought, oh, maybe I don't have to worship and so, or sing. So that next Sunday, I, I didn't sing. And for a couple Sundays, I didn't sing. I just read the words. And, and after church one Sunday, mom had noticed that. And she said, Garrett, why aren't you singing anymore? And I said, well, well dad doesn't sing, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think I need to do it any, either. And mom said, well, your dad doesn't sing because he can't sing, so, but you can, so make sure you sing. The point of that, though, is I looked to my dad, and I, you know, I saw he wasn't doing it, so I didn't do it. I followed his example. Do you know what happened to Israel in the book of Judges? At the very beginning of the book of Judges, it said the previous generation died off and a new generation arose who did not know the works of God. What ends up happening? They fall into sin. They worship other gods. They fall away. Over and over and over again, the cycle of oppression continues. And it starts because they didn't know the works of God. They did not fear the Lord. And it's because their ancestors, their fathers, their mothers didn't listen to the Shema. It's because they didn't show their children to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They, they didn't show that in their homes. They didn't talk about it when they were out. They didn't think about it when they went to bed. They didn't wake up in the morning thinking about it. They didn't plaster it around their city walls. They didn't plaster it on the houses of their homes. Their worship wasn't constant and continual. It didn't exemplify their faith. And because of that, Israel fell into oppression and evil and fell away from God. So what's, what's going to happen with the church? If we fall into this cycle of, well, let's just worship one hour a week. Well, it, you know, I can't be there this week, so I'll, I'll be there next week. I can't be there that week, so I'll be there once a month. You know, the average, the, the it, Gallup, there's a Gallup poll that says the, a regular church attendee comes to church three out of every eight Sundays. And of Americans, 20% of Americans are considered regular attendees. So that means 20% of Americans choose to come three out of every eight Sundays. That's considered regular. I don't think that's regular. What's going to happen if we relegate our worship to one Sunday a month, to, to every holiday, to, to one quarter a year? We're going to become the Israelites that are broken and falling apart. If we're not worshiping God like the Shema, if the Shema isn't who we are, then we lose the potency, we lose the empowerment that the early church had as well. Our worship of God as a family of believers is who we are. And if we neglect that, not only are we neglecting the command to follow God, but we're also saying there's things that are more important than you, God. God, I'll, I'll, I'll worship next week. I'll, I'll be there next week. I have something right now. And that's when everything begins to fall apart. And so here's my... I guess here is my uh, challenge. 
I want us to be a church that doesn't just say, I'm going to be there on a Sunday morning, or I'll be there next Sunday, or I'll be there every holiday. I want us to be a church that says, hey, you want to get together and and worship tomorrow night? Hey, you want to get together and pray together tomorrow night? Hey, I, I, I want us to meet together. I want us to be so desirous of worshiping God consistently that we just call someone up and say, hey, let's get together and read Scripture. That that is the devotion of our lives because if it's not, we run the risk of falling apart. And so, you know, this morning, Wendell asked the question in his Sunday school class, what do we want, what, what do we want to have changed in the world? What, what do we want to have fixed in the world? I think that's how you put it. I want the church to be built on the Shema. I want us to live out the command to worship God constantly and consistently. And out of that worship, to be empowered so that we see the Lord adding to our numbers every single day. It's a big, big challenge. But unless that's the church that we become or strive to be, I don't think we're following Scripture. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to close in a hymn that I think encompasses this command. I surrender all. Unless you're willing to surrender your life here in pursuit of a worship and a loving relationship with God, you're just going through the motions. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I... I pray that this morning as we've studied your word, as we've seen the importance of loving you and, and holding this love and this worship continually, I pray that it empowers us and encourages us. God, help us to strive to not ever neglect you. Don't let us put ourselves above you, but help us to surrender all to you in pursuit of you and in the expectation that you are pursuing and empowering us. Thank you, Lord, for your son. It's in his name that we gather together and pray. Amen. Let's stand and, and close.